big news, because we had so much fun at our last live show, we're doing it again. That's right. We're going live again, but this time we're going to the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, which is an absolute dream come true of a location. This show is going to be part of a larger romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. And I'll give you details about all of the awesome events that they'll have going on that weekend soon. But for now, head on over to the ticket link in the show notes and get your tickets for our performance, which will be on March 9th at 7.15 p.m. Eastern Time. We don't have streaming set up quite yet, but we're working on it because we know a lot of you aren't in New York. But if you are or if you can get here, we hope that you'll get your tickets and come join us because it's going to be a blast. Hey, everyone. Before we begin today, we want to give a huge shout out to our patron, Anna, who upgraded their pledge. If you want access to special content like our exclusive Patreon Discord community, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice. We are now less than a month away from our first ever live show. We're so excited. It's happening November 18th at 4 p.m. Eastern Time at Caveat NYC. Early bird tickets are available until November 11th. Patrons get a 15% discount. And for those of you who don't live in New York, don't worry. The show is going to be live streamed for just $10 and you can watch the video on demand for a whole week following the event. Tickets are available at the link in the show notes, so get them before they sell out. And now, enjoy this week's episode covering the first episode of the 2009 Emma miniseries starring Ramala Garai with our guests Diane and Zan from The Thing About Austin. This is Becca. This is Molly. We are here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Emma! <laughs> 2009. Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read many Jane Austen novels and watched many adaptations of her work through my life. And I, Molly, have never done any of that before, and I'm doing so for the first time through this podcast. If you want to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility for the first time, you can listen to seasons one and two of this podcast, respectively, but that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about Emma, 2009. Starring, I cannot pronounce her name. Ramala Garai. Ramala Garai. Ramala Garai. Ramala Garai. Ramala Garai. And Johnny Lee Miller. Daddy. <laughs> <laughs> I'm obsessed with him. Rightfully so. And we are joined today by Diane and Zan from The Thing About Austin. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thank you for having us. Oh my God. Thanks so much for being here. Well, why don't we start with telling the listeners a little bit about your podcast and, you know, your little niche in the Jane Austen podcasting world. Yeah. Um, Dan, do you want me to take this? Yes, please. Okay. Um, yeah, so we are a podcast about Jane Austen's world. That's sort of our our main tagline. So it's a little bit historical context. It's a little bit literary analysis. Basically, if you are someone who is curious about all the little mentions in Austin's novels and possibly also confused by some of them. Our podcast is about explaining all of those things. That's awesome. If you're someone who listens to our podcast and hears how many questions we ask each other about the Jane Austen world, <laughs> the thing about Austin is where you might find some answers for those little historical context things. Um, so whenever we have guests on the podcast, we always ask a set of questions to define people's relationships to Jane Austen. Starting with the first question, what is your relationship to Jane Austen? That's obviously a hugely complex question. <laughs> but I would say, um, you know, my relationship with Jane Austen started when I was around 14 or 15 and I started reading her novels. 
scared my parents to death and skipped out on a basketball camp to read Mansfield Park in the park. And I think that really sets a tone for the way that I have interacted with Austin for the rest of my career. So I actually am a English professor. And so I have a relationship with Austin, both in terms of enjoying her novels just immensely, but also I really have this fascination with her on an academic realm as well. So I think I think she's kind of spanned the gamut for me. Yeah. How does one summarize what is practically a lifelong obsession? I don't, <laughs> you know. So I came to Jane Austen at around age 12. Um, my first Austen novel was Emma, um, which is, I think, not super typical. And because my second was Mansfield Park, which is definitely not typical. <laughs> and I haven't looked back since. So, you know, Jane and I go way back. <laughs> And Zan and I actually met in graduate school as well. So in a Jane Austen class. Yes. <laughs> wow. Oh, that is so sweet. And I mean, I I was going through it in my head. I was like thinking to myself, I would say, in my opinion, Emma and Mansfield Park are probably her two most diametrically opposed pieces of work. Mm. So it's really fun that you went from like, without spoiling much from for Molly, like light mm-hmm. lightness to, yep. to true darkness yes. in the span of just like right one uh one book um yeah so question number two for you guys would be what is your favorite piece of austin content we specify this can be a book this can be um a podcast this can be a youtube video a movie whatever speaks most to you well i um and listeners of our podcast will already know this but i adore the 1995 film adaptation of persuasion mm. with kieran hines as captain wentworth no spoilers but it's it's my favorite but my very favorite thing about that film it's a little bit of nerdy trivia is that when it was originally released on vhs in the us the cover image has two models on it who aren't even in the film. And it's not just like, they're not just on the cover. It's like a steamy rip bodice cover. They're doing a full clinch pose, if you know what yeah. that is. And it's like, it, it's not the actors. It's such a disconnect from the entire film that I absolutely love this VHS cover. That's amazing. <laughs> so it's like a Danielle Steele novel cover. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's not the actors. There's those, those two people don't appear in the film anywhere. They don't even play like side characters. They're just, no. they're not even present in the film. Iconic. It's so good. That's amazing. They were clearly worried that the American audience would not be willing to pick up this, you know, British period drama from... Not sexy enough. Yeah, it's not sexy enough. <laughs> wow. Clearly they haven't looked at the yearning and the dancing mm-hmm. enough, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. I am going to have to go with, I was really thinking about this, you know, way overthinking this, but I was like, okay, what would I really have a hard time being separated from? And I think it would just be the many special edition copies that I have because I am a collector of the various Austin editions. So I don't know. I just like having all the various editions with the different illustrations, the different cover treatments. It's a problem. It really is. I mean, it's a serious problem. I think at last count, I have more than 50 copies of Pride and Prejudice because that's the one, obviously, that gets released the most often. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's an issue. I mean, that plus my Jane Austen action figure, it's kind of hard to choose between those two things. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I love everything about that. I have this, I only have one collector's edition, Pride and Prejudice, and it's a it's the one you probably also have it, but it has like the handwritten letters. Yes, that, yes, yeah. yes. It's very cool. Yeah, if it's the edition done by Barbara Heller, who does. I she, think that's right. Yeah. yeah, and so she's like, there's just such, it's such well-researched ephemera and like little pieces that she's pulled out from the novel. And then, yeah, 
yeah. done that. It's great. It's beautiful. Incredible. So question number three is which Austin character do you relate to the most and why? This one is like so revealing. I was, I was like, how do I share things without like oversharing <laughs> things with the character? You don't have to give an explanation. You can just say who you relate or to. Or you can overshare. Yeah. Would you want. like to look deeply into our souls or not? I don't know. Right, like, like what level of commitment are we giving on this? Kind of... <laughs> but I think that there's a certain amount of relatability to um, Catherine Moreland for me um, in terms of there's a certain amount of naivete and like not getting it that I sometimes have where, where like conversations will be happening around me and I'll be like, I think that I'm catching what's happening, but then like subtext is like flying over my head often. And so I feel like, I feel like I can at least appreciate Catherine Moreland on that, on that level. I think you also have a sort of a fangirl enthusiasm for the things you love, much oh, like Catherine Moreland. So absolutely. that fits. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I never know how to answer this question, but I will have to go with Eleanor Dashwood from, I think, the most known characters since I trend towards the practical. I'm not particularly mm-hmm. sentimental. She's much more patient than I am. I think I would have probably had some words with Marianne much earlier than she does mm-hmm. in frustration. <laughs> but, um, and then also John Knightley, when I really just don't want to talk to anyone, oh. you know? So Oh, yeah. We love John Knightley on this podcast. So Eleanor Dashwood when I'm feeling more patient and John Knightley when I'm not. Um, also Sir John Middleton, because I, too, only want to talk about dogs. And so yeah. I relate to that. Yeah, Same. I think the most relatable moment in any Jane Austen novel is when Marianne's asking John Middleton what he knows about Willoughby. And he's like, he has a really good dog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I love Sir John. He's one of my favorite characters. He's just like, you know, he's just like, let's hang out. Let's just like talk about dogs and stuff. We're having a great time. He's like, oh, there's drama. But have you seen the dogs? You know? (laughs) Yeah. He's the guy who's at the party, but is only just hanging out with the dog, Mm -hmm. which is me also. Mm -hmm. So (laughs) Relatable content. Yes. Absolutely. And my personal favorite question, our final question is, what is your hottest Austin take? So like, we use this as a chance for people to say something that they think about Austin that maybe isn't in the zeitgeist. Ours is together. We think, I guess, Lydia Bennett is a tragic figure. Mm. Or that Daddy Bennett, Mr. Is Bennett Daddy. Is, is hot. Hot. Yeah. <laughs> that That's more just Molly's take. I hear Molly say that all the time. And every single time it comes up, I'm always like, hmm. Okay, you know, <laughs> I, I, I'm I'm not here to yuck your yums, you know, like you do you. Yeah, I am. I'm here to yuck your yums. <laughs> I get it. No, I mean, here's the thing. To be fair to Molly, and I'll say this forever, Donald Sutherland in the 2005 version of Pride and Prejudice, pretty hot. I mean, he can get it but, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, but Molly also like started her crush through the book and then continued it during the wonderful 1995 adaptation okay. of Pride and Prejudice. And, um, the mutton chops on Mr. <laughs> Bennett and that one, are, I I think are it's a, a lot. little... It's a lot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if you could see Molly's face right now, she is glowing. She is glowing just thinking about Mr. Bennett. I am. I just like sighed into the distance. Um, but, you know, we all have our, our thing, <laughs> I guess. Oh, that's great. And I don't, I don't know if I have Austin hot takes. I was actually talking to Diane about this, and I'm because I have a lot. That's she the problem. She has the best hot takes, <laughs> yeah. and so like we should just pass the mic directly over to Diane. <laughs> okay, so this is the thing that I think about way too much. I think about this all the time, and Molly, I'm going to really try to keep this not 
a spoiler for you because this is related to Mansfield Park. My hottest Austin hot take <laughs> is that, and stay with me, Becca. Don't don't freak I out. I got you. I got okay? you. I'm here. I'm here. Edmund Bertram is the hottest Austin hero. Oh my god! Not in terms of character because no. he's the worst. He is wet cabbage. <laughs> but just physically, he must be an absolute Adonis. It is the only explanation to me for why two of the characters, unnamed for you, Molly, but two of the characters, including one who is quite worldly, they are so into him. And so nothing else makes sense to me. This man <laughs> must just be like sex walking. It is the only thing that makes sense. And I rest my case. I, I can respect that take. <laughs> you had me in the first half. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> like he's not, he's not a try. It's the kind of thing where it's like, once he opens his mouth, you would think, mm, no, no, thank you. Yeah. But he must just be like a stone cold fox. It must be radi- radiating off of him. Like he must be so good looking yeah. that everybody just passes out when he walks into a room because the personality is not there. Yes. I mean, the other thing, like you look at like a character like George Wickham mm-hmm. in Pride and Prejudice, also canonically hot. Yes. Yes. Um, and this is one of my big gripes with adaptations of uh, Pride and Prejudice is that in most of them, for some reason, they decided that Darcy should be the hotter actor than yeah. them, mm-hmm. which isn't canon. Right. Um, and I'm always like, well, why would she believe him? Yeah. Because part of it is like, he's not believable. Mm-hmm. He's just hot. Yeah. But the one I want to shout out, as I have before in the past, and I will again, uh, Fire Island. Mm. Uh, Jolkin Booster's more recent uh, Pride and Prejudice adaptation. Yes. Because that Wickham is so hot and yes. charming that you're like, oh yeah, I'd believe anything. Anything he says. Yeah. I mean, everybody in that movie is so attractive. So, yes. you know, um, I think the other adaptation that actually gets that right in terms of, you know, like Darcy's attractive, but Wickham is like, whoa, is Death Comes to Pemberley, where Matthew Good plays Wickham. Ooh, and yeah. I'm like, oh, I think this might be one of the first times where I'm like, OK. Oh, also uh, Lizzie Bennet Diaries, the guy who plays Wickham in that oh, is also very, yeah. very attractive. And yeah. you kind of get it. And Darcy's kind of like he's handsome, but like mm, kind of a schlub in a mm-hmm. way that makes sense. Yeah. 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 I've forgotten what Wickham looks like in that. He's blonde, blue eyed. He's got he's got like blonde tech bro energy. Um, yeah. Right. It's the way that I would. Yeah. And he's on well, he's on a swim team of some yeah, sort. Right, yeah. the swim team. Okay. Which you saying blonde tech bro energies and it's not appealing, I gotta say. You know, that's not No, yeah. <laughs> like he's hot, but like but everything again, you know, he's the, the charisma is is there, but then after a while you're like, mm, it, it wears off quick. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I love that you've said that Edmund Bertram is smoking hot and that Molly has already said that she's into Johnny Lee Miller because there is an adaptation of Mansfield Park with Johnny Lee Miller. As Edmund Bertram. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. So putting that on your horizon. Yep. He has played two Austin heroes. So, wow. Yes. I love him so much. I think, I mean, I've loved all of the Mr. Knightleys that we've seen so far because I think that Mr. Knightley is a very uh, dreamy Sexy character. character. Yeah. yeah. He's so hot. He is the ultimate stern brunch daddy. So, yeah. yes. Oh, yes, this makes yes. sense. Um, and Johnny Lee Miller, like, as soon as he came on screen, I was like, okay. Perfect. We were watching this together and she just went hot. (laughs) (laughs) It's accurate, you know? Yeah. Which is a good segue to talking about the episode. Right. Uh, So let's dive in. The miniseries decides to start at Emma's childhood. So we see Emma being born, her dad, played by Sir Michael Gambon, rest in peace, and her mom, who is alive when she's born, obviously. Um, (laughs) Immediately, though, we find out, you know, the worst happens and her mom dies. So we see 
that Emma has a hard beginning that makes her father, like, it shows her father taking his daughters, pulling them in close and being like, you know, your mother died. I'm never going to let go of you, too. And it's heartbreaking. I also want to point out that um, speaking of Johnny Lee Miller, the wonderful actor who plays Mr. Knightley in this adaptation, uh, the opening monologue discussing some like using some of the opening lines from Emma and also just added uh, monologuing on top of it is narrated by Mr. Knightley Mm -hmm. at the beginning. Oh, Mm -hmm. yeah. He actually narrates throughout the miniseries, I think, which is it's kind of it's sort of like Mrs. Weston narrating the Mm -hmm. 1996 Emma, which, mm-hmm. yeah, I was thinking it's interesting when they make that choice to have a character also be the narrator, because I'm like, mm-hmm. OK, so are you yourself narrating right now or are you just the actor narrating? Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like it could be himself because of who Knightley is to Emma, like mm-hmm. and how much he sees the parallels between her and Frank and Jane yeah. throughout the story. Yeah. So him giving us this at the beginning. And also, he knows her better than anyone else. So he's able to give her inner monologue sometimes. So actually, I love that. Yeah. So we see Mr. Woodhouse bring in Miss Taylor as like a substitute motherly figure. And we see Miss Taylor walking Emma down the street as Mr. Perry rushes by to go to Mr. Weston's house where his wife is dying. And we see baby Frank and his dad being sad together because his mom just died. So that's an immediate parallel between Frank and Emma. Mm -hmm. Mrs. Churchill comes and takes Frank away. And Mr. Weston stands in the rain, just like crying. (laughs) And it breaks my heart. Yeah. This opening between Frank and Emma, and then we'll get to it, but Jane immediately does uh, the side of Austin that's class commentary as opposed to romance right away mm-hmm. because you have three kids that lose a parent and you have three drastically different results based on social standing. And the TV series immediately highlights that. It also does it in a way that, I mean, it sets it up, especially to have a narrator, it sets it up as an opening of a fairy tale where they've got Emma's life is charmed and this is, you know, everything's going to be fine. And then you get those really, really specific parallels between Frank and Jane and Emma and just the way that it's told, it really sets those up. I think you're absolutely right as far as like class dynamics, but it also sets it up as like, this is a fairy tale and it's about these three orphans as like the opening, a salvo as a, as a fairy tale, which I think is really fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I know that we read this book very in depth and that I at some level understood the parallel between the three of them but seeing it laid out one two three Mm -hmm. really just hit home in a way that it didn't necessarily for me and other adaptations or even reading the book yeah so Jane being the third of these three we see her aunt falling on hard times and we see a time when Mrs. Bates actually spoke and was like having a conversation with her daughter. And so the Bateses are losing their house and they're like, we have to send Jane away. We're not going to have space for her. We need to downsize. And she goes away with Colonel Campbell. And we just like watch how much this devastates the Bateses. And that just really got me like her story is so heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. And she's already lost her parents. And we'll be jumping ahead just to get there. But the context this gives to how Emma treats Miss Bates through the whole story mm-hmm. 
makes Emma seem absolutely despicable. <laughs> yeah. It, it frames it very overtly. Yeah. They have a lot more scenes in this where it's showing Miss Bates and Mrs. Bates alone at home or looking sad together. There's mm-hmm. just, there's a, a lot more attention paid to that, I think. I think there's also this really fascinating attention to detail in this first episode with starting with that scene where we see Miss Bates and Mrs. Bates and what they choose and what's so hard and that the tension that actually builds up in their own relationship between mother and daughter. Mm-hmm. But then also just with costuming, Tamsin Grieg, who plays uh, Miss Bates, her costume in that scene is quite vibrant. Mm-hmm. The very next scene where we see time has passed, her she's wearing the same dress and it's much more faded. And uh, I love mm. the way that they just made that so visually apparent because those scenes are pretty much back to back. And so I think, again, it goes to your point where it just makes Emma's treatment of Miss Bates a lot more tangible. Yeah, absolutely. So then we get the theme song. We see these like pretty silhouettes. I, I loved the theme for this, the opening moment. Um, it kind of reminds me of those collector's editions of the Austin books with the silhouettes that are like cut out of paper on the front and like behind a plastic thing. I don't know if they did that intentionally, but that's what it reminded me of. I was thinking that it was reminding me of paper dolls. Mm-hmm. Mm. Oh, that's probably it. No, I don't think you're wrong. I think that the silhouette is very much so um, a thing, but I was just like, because the very, very next thing after you open that opening sequence with those silhouettes is you see Emma under a table playing with dolls. And so yeah. that doll comparison is pretty, there's a strong correlation there. And I thought that that was yeah. really fascinating to see that. Yeah, because the dolls come back. Um, she Every time she's trying to make a match, she like plays with her little dolls. Mm-hmm. And at some point, Knightley's like, uh, do you have your dolls ready? And she's like, no, I've outgrown them. And he's like, okay. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I actually have a, a copy of Emma where it's a, I think from the 70s, paperback copy of Emma where the cover is uh it's an illustration of emma and she is holding on to like like marionette like puppets and that's Mm. they're sort of doing the same thing here right she's like a puppet master with her dolls she's playing dolls and it's a great visual connection i think between the novel and the adaptation that they're doing with that definitely absolutely so while Emma is playing with her dolls under the table, Miss, Mrs. Bates and Miss Bates are over and Miss Bates is just going on about something that Jane wrote. And this is like, for me, the moment where it hit how tragic Mrs. Bates is, because like you said, their relationship has become kind of strained and Mrs. Bates just doesn't talk anymore. And you see, <laughs> like throughout the episode, even she gets quieter and quieter and the music that accompanies Mrs. Bates gets sadder and sadder. Yeah. It's just like, ugh really hits hard but while she's prattling on emma does this like eye roll sigh thing and then it like time jumps as she's eye rolling into being seven years later and miss bates is still talking about jane and i thought that was hilarious and i think miss bates is talking about jane learning french or something and then emma goes i'm going to ask mr knightley to teach me chinese and her <laughs> eyes get huge and she just is the master of facial expressions yeah. and like yes. eyeball acting ramala does a lot with her eyeballs all absolutely. the time absolutely i think this is a good time for me to say that this is my favorite uh acting job on emma personally i love her performance yeah. as emma i think she is simultaneously she seems immature and rude and crass but also warm-hearted and joyful 
in a way that makes her likable even when she's being appalling. Yeah. Which is not an easy combo to mix. Not at all. Not at all. And I think it's a very specific balance to really find her adorable while Mm -hmm. she's doing terrible things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think her performance is just that precise, delicate balance. Because I think Emma's a character that if done incorrectly is not enjoyable to watch necessarily. (laughs) But if you really get in on who she is and like the dynamics of what makes her so incredible, she's like the best character to watch. And I think Ramal Garai really captures her. Yeah, I think she's probably my favorite Emma as well, just because of her ability to walk that line between being a complete brat, but you also like her and she seems kind of sweet and she's taking really good care of her father but you're also like wow you're ridiculous you know so that's a lot I say this a lot um but Emma as a character is very clueless I know that's uh, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. um but I think that Ramala Garai really uh shows that in a way that other ones haven't like they seem like they're being mean on purpose and mm-hmm. she seems like she's being mean because she's not picking up on the social cues that she's mm-hmm. getting mm-hmm. she's just like totally in her own world so i really love her so we learn that jane is reading a list of 100 books so emma has made a list of 101 <laughs> books that she wants to read such a good detail so good and knightley comes in and he's like telling her off and as we've already said hot <laughs> johnny lee miller yeah king of austin he really is <laughs> Emma is complaining about how annoying the Bateses are and how much she hates hearing about Jane and she knows she should be nice and it just like reminds me about them being little babies and both having the same thing happen to them but Emma is rich so she's okay. Mm-hmm. And then we see John and Isabella outside playing together which hints that this is not necessarily the beginning of the book yet. Uh, John and Isabella are flirting and Emma's like, hmm... I think that those two are going to get together. And he goes, John and Isabella, no. <laughs> and then we, of course, jump to John and Isabella getting married. And that's Emma's first match. Mm-hmm. That's like, um, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's like, they're never going to get married. And then it's the theme song comes in and it's like, John and Isabella get married. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> yes. Zan understands the reference. But it's it's a quick jump, and I love I love that that it's and and that Emma takes credit for it it's just because she's observed it. She's like, mm-hmm. I had something to do with that. Yeah, yeah. And then as she's at the wedding, she's looking around and she's like, Hmm, who's gonna be next? And then we kind of get a time jump again to them still sitting in church, but Emma is noticing Miss Taylor and Mr. Weston making eyes at each other. And so outside the church, she starts like pushing them together and tells them to get under one umbrella together. And that is like the beginning of their relationship. And we jump to Mr. Woodhouse being like, this is a terrible thing for Miss Taylor. (laughs) (laughs) And this is the scene that is in the book that I feel like we don't really get in any other adaptation where Emma, just like you were just saying, Zan, is like, I'm taking credit for this. And Knightley's like, all you did was say that might be nice if they got together. You didn't put in any effort. How can you call that success? And I just really (laughs) love their bickering in this moment. Yeah. Yeah. I I think they have like a very different kind of chemistry than the chemistry we've seen in other adaptations. Mm. Um, If you see the 1996 or the 2020 feature film adaptations of Emma, 
it's a much spicier sort of sweeping. In 1996, it's a very sweeping romance situation because you have Jeremy Northam smirking and <laughs> all that. And then in 2020, you have like a spicy, sexy romance between Emma and Knightley, which is great in its own right. But here, what's beautiful about a miniseries and particularly a well-done miniseries is it gives the story room to breathe. It mm-hmm. gives the story room to exist in its littler moments. Yeah. And what I like is that you get Knightley and Emma bickering and that familiarity building and very clear on our screens from the get-go. You really have that like gentle, loving, best friendship back and forth. Yeah. Their banter is so good in this adaptation. Oh, yeah. Just all of it, all of the back and forths when they're mad at each other, when they're teasing each other, all of their banter feels genuine in, or, or, or organic, I should say. It feels very organic to their characters. And that is is lovely to get to kind of see, like you said, the development throughout as well. I think in some of the other adaptations, like, you know, the heat is there, but it's almost a heat that feels like it's coming from, oh, these are two characters that almost like just met and like, oh, sparks are flying, you know. Mm-hmm. And this one very much feels like the kind of banter of we have known each other way too long and like we really know how to push <laughs> each other's buttons. And and I'm going to call you on your nonsense. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And they're both comfortable doing it. Yeah. Which I love. Then we see Isabella, who now has a million children. and <laughs> I was trying to count them. I think that she's got six. Yeah, it's a lot. I was like, how much time has passed? Enough for that many babies. Right. So that's a good metric. <laughs> and she is saying that it's hard that Miss Taylor is leaving because Emma's going to be all by herself and Mr. Woodhouse is going to be all by himself. And John is like, well, you left and came all the way to London. And she's like, yeah, but Emma was still there to take care of him. And he says, so Emma can never marry. And that kind of establishes her predicament as the woman of the household. Mm -hmm. Mm. And then, of course, the little boys run in and Knightley throws one over his shoulder and it's so sexy. Yeah, I was going to say that's like peak dreamboat energy. (laughs) Dreamboat behavior. (laughs) So then we get the wedding and this is the start of the book. Uh, The wedding between... Miss Taylor, now Mrs. Weston, and Mr. Weston. And I love this part. Mr. Perry is about to take a slice of cake, and Mr. Lacoste is like, I'm so sorry that there's cake here. I know how much you, you disapprove of it. And he's like, oh, yeah. Let me just put this plate back. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and Emma points out that Frank isn't there, and she thinks that he is staying away to increase his mysteriousness to the young ladies of the town. Which, again, I think is a good way that this adaptation kind of shows how imaginative she can be you know like in the stories that she's making up in her head because there's nothing happening where she lives you know she's so bored there's nothing going on so what better than to make up some fake drama about this guy that she's never even met like ooh, he's he must be mysterious you know she's having fun with it i love that point because also it's like it's actually kind of a horrible tragedy Mr. Weston had to give up his son because he couldn't afford to keep him. And his son is so distant from him now, he doesn't come to his wedding. Mm -hmm. And you can see that heartbreak on his face. And Emma doesn't catch it. All she says is, ooh, he is being mysterious. And like, it cheers up Mr. Weston to think that. But Emma is so sort of inert and sheltered from like the hardship of that situation for Mr. Weston Mm. that she's like coming up with something exciting and that kind of plays into later her fantasies about what's going on with Jane Fairfax as well like these people who have real problems and dark family dynamics 
Emma's not there and Emma's instead bored enough to be sort of making up more fun things to Mm -hmm. fill the gaps in those families. Right. I think I can also sort of see that scene as like a little bit of the kind of nice part of Emma where Mm -hmm. she maybe sees that Mr. Weston is like a little bit down and she's kind of like, well, you know, he's Frank Churchill. He's trying to be mysterious, you know, and sort of like cheering Mr. Weston up that way. But again, it's Emma. So cheering him up with a sort of fantastical, you know. Right. She's not going to go over there and just sort of be like, I'm sure he'll come eventually, you know. (laughs) Like, it's... Yeah. She's making it kind of fun. Yeah, I kind of watched that the same way where I I was reading it or watching it as the same way that Knightley often will cheer up um, Emma and Mr. Woodhouse about Mm -hmm. stuff by like, being like, oh, do you want to hear about your new niece? Like, Mm -hmm. I I was reading that as her trying to cheer them up in, in her own way. After the wedding, Emma and... Mrs. Weston cry and say goodbye and it's very heartwarming and sad also and the Bateses are just there at their (laughs) house and they're like waving them off and then Miss Bates just wheels Mrs. Bates away and just like talking the whole time like oh yes it's very exhausting day Uh, well before that she says that thing about like oh the house will be so empty now it's like a ghost house a ghost house She's like, you guys are going to be so lonely in this house now. That sucks for you. I feel like the Miss Bates in this adaptation, she has a lot more lines like that where you're just kind of like, whoa, what? okay. She's a little bit a little bit darker, but in like a way that's like still nonsensical. Yeah, yeah. But it's kind of interesting too, because like as as that the scene is closing, you've got her pushing her mom down the driveway and you've got Mrs. Weston driving off to her marriage. And so we see these like divergent kind of, older women older i'm using air quotes heavily here but you know these these women they're who old had... haggard crones and they have nothing left okay? <laughs> they were probably over 27 or something like that yeah, ridiculous yeah. yeah they're dried up <laughs> but you see kind of like that divergence of like life choices and options that were available and then in the very very next scene because after miss bates has said like oh it's like a ghost house we actually see emma wandering through her house having like fantasies of like when she was a child so like she's like it's like miss bates has implanted that in her little (laughs) fantasy brain and she's like yes it is a ghost house i literally wrote she's watching ghosts of little emma and isabella playing together she's having like her dickensian like childhoods of christmas past moment or something okay can can i tell you something totally nerdy that i was noticing though is like while she's having this little She's standing in a window while this is happening and she's looking into the house and she sees past little Emma and Isabella playing. And all the while in the background, you can still see Mr. Knightley walking up to the house. So she's in this very liminal moment and we've got her past and then we've got Mr. <gasps> Knightley coming to the Ooh. house. I know. I was like, I see what you were doing there. <laughs> the liminality. <laughs> uh, wow. When Knightley is coming, this is the first of many waves that Emma does. She always, like, full-on waves her... <laughs> like she, I've never seen people in Austin wave before, but she's, like, waving like a small child. Like, enthusiastic. Yeah, she's always, like, just, hello! Yeah, I wish you guys could see us, because we're just, like, waving at our screen. like <laughs> Audio medium. I'm so sorry, Graham. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I think her wave is adorable. I love it. And then Knightley points at her and then waves also. It's like, hey, there's my girl. So cute. I love it. So then Knightley comes over. They're hanging out with her dad. And Emma's like, coming to see us as part of Knightley's exercise. A daily walk and a scolding of Emma is just preparing <laughs> And he looks at her and he's so confused. His eyes are like, what did you, what are you talking about? 
I love him. He's got some good facial expressions too. Like if Ramala Garai is like nailing it, he is like, he's trying to match that energy with his facial expressions as well. Yeah. The two of them are doing a lot just with eyebrows. Oh yeah. Eyebrow acting is a big thing in Austin, I think. Agreed. I remember saying that a lot about Jennifer Ely, that she was just the queen of eyebrow acting. Oh, oh yes. she does a lot with her eyebrows. Yeah. She definitely does. Yeah. Or like like just like the smallest like little mouth quirk. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like just like it's micro movements in the face. That's how they yeah. work. Whereas Ramla Garai is like big her movements whole in the face. Oh, yeah. It's the whole face. <laughs> yeah. And she's got those giant blue peepers that like are just staring into Mr. Knightley's soul whenever she talks. I think they, she must have put like eye drops in before every scene because they're just like luminescent, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah. When I talk about her, my eyes get huge. I can't help it. Yeah. It's, it's part of the thing. <laughs> <laughs> so then we see the Bateses sitting at tea with Mrs. Goddard outside while the girls all play around. And Emma walks up by herself and waves again and they are (laughs) shocked that she showed up here by herself because she could have met the travelers foreshadowing and she's like well they're Mr. Knightley says they're not so bad they come here every year and I'm not going to stay inside just because Miss Taylor is married now and Mrs. Goddard is like oh well I'm sure you're going to find a new companion and then Emma of course sees Harriet across the lawn and Harriet at this time, is saying goodbye to the Martins, the the Martin sisters. And uh, we learn that she's staying at Mrs. Goddard's to help with the little ones, which I like that she's older than the kids in this. Um, She's not actually one of the kids. It just makes it feel a little bit more level for her and Emma. It is kind of an interesting choice, though, to take her. She's not just like a parlor boarder. Now she's like also a teacher. So that's actually, that's even more of a kind of class gap for her sure. to be hanging out with Emma at that point then. I wonder if that makes Emma want to take her under her wing even more because she's like, wait a minute, you can't <laughs> be doing that. Come on. Yeah. I love how immediately she's like, try- she's like, give me the backstory. Who, who mm-hmm. is Harriet? Yeah. And Mrs. Goddard does the whole thing. Like she's the natural daughter of who knows who. Yep. Immediately, Emma is like, so she's a gentleman's daughter. <laughs> and like she has filled in Harriet's background instantaneously mm-hmm. well she even goes so far as to toss out the word like nobility and i'm like oh yeah. okay <laughs> yeah like the so. leap that she's making in that moment is so far and she hasn't even exchanged words with harriet yet this is purely based on this like and and she's like mrs goddard bring her to my house next time if you would like she's like yeah arranging her world however she likes at this they're point. her dolls <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah absolutely it was an interesting choice too and i think kind of sweet to almost make it's sort of like you're seeing Emma being like sad and a little bit jealous, I think. I mean, I don't think she realizes it because she sees Harriet's relationship with the Martin sisters and she's like, oh, I wish I had a friend, you know, because she kind of makes that comment about like, oh, they can't even bear to be away from each other. And she's, you know, so alone. And so, of course, Emma's solution to that is like, well, I'm going to steal that girl. She's going to be my friend now. <laughs> yeah, honestly. But I do love that she's like she's attuned to the fact that she she loves and embraces and wants female relationships. Mm-hmm. You know, she doesn't go about it in the best ways all the time. But like, but the fact that that is that's her priority is to find a strong female friendship as kind of a replacement for for Miss Taylor is kind of an interesting mm-hmm. thing where she's not she, again she's not husband hunting. She has no need to husband hunt, so she just friend hunts instead. Yeah, I feel like. Early on in reading Emma, I was very like, when I'm saying, I often will be like gay at various plot lines, <laughs> and I was very gay for Emma and Harriet, but 
after watching all of these adaptations and also reading Emma more fully, I feel like the friendship between Emma and Harriet is so important. And the gay plot line is Emma and Jane. Oh, yeah. Mm. I can see that. I can see that. Yeah. You can already see it in this adaptation, the palpability with which Jane Fairfax is a p- character in Emma's brain is mm. so clear cut from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. Just her as a child underneath the table, like, oh, my gosh, I don't want to hear about this again. The 101 books. Yeah. <laughs> This competition with this girl she's met, like, hasn't seen in years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is one point later on where she's, like, talking about how much she hates Jane. And she's like, it's really too bad because Jane, Frank, and I are tied together in some mysterious way. <laughs> Frank is a lost boy looking for home. So she sees the connection, but she's just like, she's, and she knows that she's being bad about it. She's like, it's really too uh, bad that yeah. I can't get over this. But, I love you know, that moment because it's such, like... I- <laughs> It's such like, I will be the main character of my own story, you know? (laughs) She's just really... (laughs) Oh, and the way that, you know, we are tied together. We are so connected. I'm like, okay, a little over the top there, Emma. We get it. (laughs) Yeah. So uh, at the dinner with Harriet and Mrs. Goddard and everyone, Harriet watches Knightley tuck his napkin into his shirt, and she starts to tuck her napkin into her shirt, and Emma gives her this little, like... Mm-mm. And she's like, oh, okay, put it in my lap. Because at first I thought it was just Knightley who was tucking his napkin into his shirt because he's adorable. But I think that the men all put it in their shirt and then the women all put it in their lap. But I like, I loved the idea of him just like tucking his napkin into his shirt and being like, ready to eat now. <laughs> and then Mr. Elton comes in late and he says he was on business for one who he regards only just above Miss Woodhouse. And Harriet is the only one who doesn't get the joke. She's like, who, who, who's business? And Mrs. Goddard's like, the almighty. It's like, oh, okay. And everyone's silent as she's having this realization. And she like spells it out like twice. She's like, God's business. Got it. It's God's business. (laughs) Got it. Oh, that's so funny. (laughs) I totally get it now. Yeah. Which I relate to Harriet in a lot of ways. And that's one of them. I've taken to just. If I don't get the joke, I will just ask because normally <laughs> I'll just smile and laugh. But then sometimes the conversation goes on too long afterwards about the joke. And I have now lied about getting it. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm so sorry. We need to go back. <laughs> anyway, uh, when Emma introduces Harriet to Mr. Elton, she calls her her special friend, which, again, she's just met this girl like two days ago. Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. 
Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now, back to this episode. And... Then we cut to Knightley and Miss Taylor walking together outside of Randall's, which is gorgeous, by the way. This Randall's is picturesque. It, it's so charming. They've got, you know, pixies in the garden and little hedgehogs just like rolling around on the lawn. I mean, we yeah. don't see that in the miniseries. I'm just saying in my imagination, that's, that's what is happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. It's She's got it made. And they are arguing about whether or not Emma's friendship with Harriet is a good thing. And as they're walking, they are playing with like little pieces of grass or sticks or something, which they also do a lot in the 1995 Pride and Prejudice. And I think it's just a miniseries thing to just pick up little pieces of grass and fiddle with them between your fingers. Because you're having these long conversations. You just got to do something with your hands, apparently. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I do that, too. I just I remember feeling very represented when I saw it in the 1995. And when I saw it again in this, I was like, wait a minute. It's a thing. Maybe I was born in the wrong era. (laughs) Um, Knightley starts digging himself this hole because she says something about Emma being. I don't know what she says about Emma being like a pretty young woman or something Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then he's like emma is the prettiest in her family i mean emma is of special regard i I love to look at her (laughs) i wrote that down too i love to look at her it's like it's like fine fine you caught me i mean yes she's hot she she is so hot but like i mean that's not what we're here to talk about okay yes she (laughs) is very very hot but i'm not here to talk about the fact that she is so so hot we don't need to discuss the fact that she is like excruciatingly hot because that's not what we're here to talk about. And you see Mrs. Weston the whole time just kind of being like, are we done with that part yet? Because <laughs> she's not saying anything. He just keeps no, going. He just keeps going. <laughs> I love it. It's it's beautiful. I also love their friendship and like the back and forth between the two of them because so and it good. comes back a lot. It's so good. Yeah. Yeah. There's there's not always room. The, again, it goes to miniseries having room for like the whole story with a Jane Austen novel. And like in most adaptations of Emma, you don't really have room for the Miss Mrs. Weston, Mr. Knightley dynamic, which is mm-hmm. lovely. Mm-hmm. And I love that you get it in this, like full scenes of them. Yeah. 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 And and that it feels so again, so organic to them that they're just, you know, that it's obvious that they have had many conversations about Emma in the past and other things, you know, that that's not the only interest that they have in common, but I think it's so, um, again, to see these friendships in this kind of community, how they evolve and how they are, are depicted is really lovely. Their, their friendship is adorable. Absolutely adorable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then we see Emma and Harriet bringing food to the poor and in the town square, Harriet sees Robert Martin. And as Harriet and Robert Martin, who is adorable, by the way, are just talking, Emma is just, like giving them this open look of disdain like what is this piece of gum under my shoe 
I could not stop watching her face this whole scene. It was so good. <laughs> she had so many facial expressions. Yeah. So many. She's like, what? This, guy, Ugh, this is gross. Like... Ew. Ew. No. Ew. Mm, I don't think so. Ew. Go away. <laughs> and like utter disdain, but also like, this is implausible. How on earth could this be the case? Like so many expressions. Yeah. And she really, this is the moment for me where I was like, oh, she just doesn't understand what's happening around her because Harriet's like, what do you think of him? And she's like, oh my God, ew. (laughs) It's so true. It's just, she just, oh my gosh. She just, she cannot even fathom that anybody would want to have a conversation with this man. She is appalled. She's absolutely appalled. And it's so sad because he's such a sweet, precious, like, Oh, a little cinnamon roll. Like, he must be protected at all costs. And it's so sad. Yeah. (laughs) And then she does another thing that is just, like, completely not reading the room, which is Miss Bates, like, leans out and she's like, Emma, I got a letter from Jane. You guys should come in and hear it and, like, hang out for a little bit. And Emma goes, I'm sorry, we're going to visit the poor. (laughs) Like, as if, and, like, we see the Bates is, like, in their tiny little apartment that's crumbling around them with their meager little fire. And it's like, that is the poor. There are other poor, but, like, that's so rude. And then she immediately to Harriet is like, that was close. Like, Mm -hmm. whoa. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's 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 those just juxtapositions are so strong in this in this adaptation. Yeah. As Emma and Harriet are walking, Emma convinces Harriet that Robert Martin is nothing and she should start thinking of other men who are superior conveniently as they are passing Mr. Elton's house and he's standing outside <laughs> like Hello. And Emma does that wave thing. She's just like, hey, check out our baskets. She's like, look what we're doing. We're going to do something good. <laughs> Which is so funny because it's like, if she knew anything about Mr. Elton's character, she should know that he could care less about her charitable good works. Like, right. he does not care. No. I will also say, we didn't mention it yet, but the fact that Emma is making Harriet carry like three times the amount of shit that she's carrying. And the poor girl is like dropping stuff and she's like, oh God. (laughs) And she's even like, Harriet, you'll get the hang of it. (laughs) Yeah. Well, speaking of this Mr. Elton. Oh. First of all, I I found this Elton attractive. Well, that's the thing. He is, he's so, everything this Mr. Elton says, it's just, I don't, I can't decide, like, am I reading the book wrong? Have I been reading the book this wrong the whole time? Is Emma really that dumb? Because if Mr. Elton of this miniseries is the same Elton of the book, you would have to be an absolute moron to not understand that this yes. man is, like, into you. Like, yes. everything he says to Emma has such a sexual undertone. Yes. Everything he says is, like, it's a, it is just a full-on tone of seduction. He's just, like... I mean, he might as well just be like, hey, baby, what's going yeah, on? You know, that's exactly what he's doing. <laughs> and he's and he's like, he's always getting so close to her whenever he has that opportunity. Mm. Like, I, I wrote a same note where I was like, it's so overt that he is into to Emma. There's no way to read this as interest in Harriet. She's willfully understand misunderstanding every interaction with this dude. Like he says stuff that aren't even sexual innuendo, but the way he says it makes me think, Oh, is that like a term that I don't know? Do I need to look that up on Urban Dictionary? Because like, I feel like it's sexual, even though what he's saying is not actually sexual. Yeah. Yeah. I I found that most, I mean, I've only seen three adaptations at this point, but all of the Eltons have been very obvious in that way. And I'm like, oh, we really got the book through Emma's perspective because (laughs) that's the only way that 
we wouldn't have noticed. I mean, I'm sure yeah. maybe other people noticed that he was flirting with Emma earlier on than I did. But, like, she really tries not to understand. And this one, because he's kind of hot, yeah, it's, like, more sexy and less creepy, at least mm. for me. Yeah. Well, I think, like, like Alan Cummings was definitely doing that whole, like, oh, I'm being pretty obvious. But it's also the way he plays it is, like, a little bit funnier. And, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. the way that this actor... Blake Ritson, I think, Blake is Ritson. who, uh, yeah, the way that he plays it is just, he's like, I'm hot. I know it. You know it. Well, <laughs> what I find fascinating is that Blake Ritson is like a leading man. Yes. Uh, yet another guy who has been, without spoilers, in a Mansfield Park adaptation. Also playing Edmund Bertram. Edmund Bertram. <laughs> and he is married to Hattie Morahan, who played Eleanor Dashwood in the 2008 uh, uh, Sense and Sensibility. Yep. Yeah, I love the world of Austin adaptations. I do too. <laughs> Loving it. Yeah, but the thing about him that's so interesting is that we've had Alan Cumming, handsome man, the guy who plays um, Elton in the 2020 Emma, also very handsome. But they play them so comedically, like skeevy, and they yes. are comedic character actors that it doesn't. It's so obviously like ugh. This Elton, I want to commend him as an actor because he's still kind of gross. <laughs> oh yeah. But he's so hot, but it also, like, we'll get there, but it makes Knightley's phrase ring true that when he says, like, he knows he's a handsome devil, he will not marry beneath him, he will not marry cheaply. Mm -hmm. That, to me, makes him, like, I suppose the most book accurate Elton, because he's creepy and gross, but he's also really... You can see why some woman would fall for that. Right. You could see why he could run off to Bath and get himself a wife easily pretty quickly yeah. yeah this mr elton is exactly the kind of guy that i had a crush on in college <laughs> mm. yes that's actually very true <laughs> i mean he does seem like he would definitely be in like a band and talk to you about his band all the mm. time like all yeah. the time sounds exactly like a guy that i had a crush on in college <laughs> i think it's also he's like a good this this uh mr elton is sort of a good contrast to mr knightley who you know johnny lee miller very hot but like you know they've given him like a pretty simple haircut you know he's pretty straightforward and mr elton he's got that kind of rakish like i've got a little bit of hair Mm -hmm. on my forehead and he's got really good eyebrows yeah i'm tousled and kind of like i'm 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 moody and broody you know he's 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 giving up those vibes he cares about the fact that he knows he's good looking Mm. whereas whereas knightley's like i do not need to put effort into this i need to impress no one and that is hot it's hugely attractive yeah oh yes yes also, like, Elton's haircut is also, like, peak 2009 energy. Like, not at all Regency era. Yeah, emo kind of. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. So Emma and Harriet are painting, and Elton comes up, and he's like, that is a very good tree to Harriet. <laughs> <laughs> it is not, reader, a very good tree, but, you know. Um, and as they're painting, we have this sweet moment between Mr. Woodhouse and Mrs. Weston where Mrs. Weston is saying that Emma's all grown up now and her work as governess is done, but she's always going to be their friend and she'll be there for both of them. And meanwhile, Emma gets Mr. Elton to quote unquote commission a painting of Harriet <laughs> as she does. And she's giving him these flirty glances, which like she doesn't mean to, mm-hmm. but that's just how her face is. It's so communicative that he's like, I can read, I can read that. I've got yeah. you. Yeah. Absolutely. She's trying to flirt on Harriet's behalf, but it's, you know, working the opposite yeah. way. Yeah. Because that always does the trick. Always, totally. always. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. there's also a sense to which like this Emma is so playful with how she speaks to everyone mm-hmm. that it seems like she is flirting with everyone yeah. mm-hmm. all the time. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I really loved this moment where she goes, whose painting do you think Mr. Elton just commissioned? And Harriet's like, whose? And Emma just like, her eyes just like take up her whole face. Her eyebrows are going up and <laughs> yeah, she's like, she's like, hello. <laughs> anyway, and then she waves goodbye at Mr. Elton. Of course. Because she has to. Big wave. Big wave. Then we see Mr. Martin coming to see Mr. Knightley and he's so nervous he almost runs away. And we get these like back-to-back scenes where he comes up to Donwell Abbey and Emma is painting Harriet and Harriet's holding an urn like above her head and her arms are shaking and she is in so much pain (laughs) and Elton is scolding her for moving. He's like, you must be perfect. But while he's not looking, she steals his tiny little pencil. And it's so funny because she's doing it like she's trying to be so sneaky about it, like where it's like the fact that they gave a whole scene to her stealing the pencil is so delightful. And I just kept waiting for that urn to just drop drop. and just crash all over the ground. She's holding it over her head with one hand while she's trying to get that pencil. I've seen this before and I'm still waiting for her to drop that urn. (laughs) Yeah. But like as soon as he put his little notebook and pencil down, I was like, oh, this is the moment. Like they're going to show us. And they're probably going to show us the gauze too. I mean, if the gauze thing happens, but like I'm hoping it does because gross, but also (laughs) I love it. Meanwhile, Emma is like misunderstanding every single thing that comes out of his mouth and is giving Harriet these glances like, aren't you so glad he's in love with you? And Harriet's like, yeah, this is the best. (laughs) And then we cut back to John and Robbie and Robbie is talking about some expansion project and Knightley is saying he doesn't really need his permission. He already seems set on it. And like while they're talking about the farm, they're also clearly not talking about the farm. I was enjoying that. that There was like they were using like euphemistic terms like this new expansion project. (laughs) Yeah. That's marriage. Yeah, the expansion (laughs) of your family. Also, this Robert Martin, we don't get much time with him here, but he's so endearing. I know. Molly Molly knows this because she knows my fiance, Mike, quite well, but I love me a noodle man. (laughs) And he's just like very tall, lanky, lanky, Uh like unassuming. So then Harriet gets a letter, which we all know what that is. And she immediately (laughs) runs to Emma and... When she gets there, Emma is telling her servant, Amy, that there's too many pies. And this is a moment where I felt like there was just such a juxtaposition between their two lives because Emma's wearing this like kind of boring gray dress. She is talking to her servant about the menu of the house. She's all by herself in this giant house. And Harriet's just gotten a letter of proposal and she's so excited and she's wearing this green dress and she runs to her and she's like oh my god oh my god oh my god can you believe this happened to me and they are just in such different phases of their lives yeah yeah emma really seems like the old lady in the scene like you know they they, they even like dressed her that way i was noticing that too and they're like she has like she's wearing a watch like a pocket watch type situation Mm -hmm. which is also this kind of matronly thing to be wearing and so i was very much so noticing the same thing with the costume molly where it was where Mm -hmm. she is not in her normal kind of like vibrant colors and Emma looks like she's a matron in this. Yeah. Cause this is just her everyday life. Yeah. She's got an estate to run. Which makes again what happens next when she's when she's gonna kind of mess around with Harriet's life a little bit harder to handle. Oh, yeah, yes. because Harriet has come to her and like they sit down at the fireplace and Harriet is looking for advice and Emma's about to mess up this girl's life. She's like 
asking if it's a good letter. And she's like, what should I do? And Emma's like, well, you must be conscious of the pain you're going to inflict. And she goes, so you think I ought to refuse him? And Emma has another moment where she just isn't reading the room. She goes, ought to? I'm like, what? What are you talking about? And then she's like, oh, you you want to you want to say yes so awkward she's like what do you want to do harriet's like uh yes i mean no i mean yes i mean yes no i mean what tell me what i want it is interesting i feel like in the novel i feel like emma reads is more overtly manipulative in the scene where she's just immediately like i mean oh you weren't you weren't planning to say yes were you dear you know it's it's it seems like a like, she knows what she's doing. Whereas in this scene, it seems like a much more genuine, just, like, shock. Like, oh, no. She truly does not understand how Harriet could like this man. Yeah. So she's like, you want to what? And then she's like, oh, I mean, if you want to, I can't convince you not to. But, like, it doesn't feel like it's out of a place of being conniving. It's more out of, like, this is genuinely what I feel. And I can't help you if you feel different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But then when Harriet says that she's going to refuse him and she says, do you think I'm right? Emma has this beat. And then she's like, oh, my God, this is the best news ever. I could not have been your friend if you were Mrs. Martin of Abbey Mill Farm. Eh." (laughs) Well, then she immediately says, I don't want to lose you. She says that to Harriet, which is, again, deeply revealing about Emma's motivations, Mm. whether she's whether she's conscious of them or not. But the fact that she says, I don't want to lose you when I've just found you as a friend, she's just like, I understand that you're lonely, but this is not maybe the best way to go about keeping friends. Yeah. It's the kind of friendship where you're not actually concerned about your friend and what's in their best interest. Your friendship is selfish and only about, you know, because for all Emma knows, she could meet some random, I mean, obviously not with her dad, but there is a situation where she could meet some random guy and like, move off to wherever and or or something could happen to her or whatever. And then, you know, Harriet has no one. So it's a situation where obviously we know how it ends in the novel, but Emma could have really ruined this girl's life. Like she could have really destroyed her long-term prospects here and really for for no other reason than just that, you know, she wants somebody to play with basically. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's why some people do have like that big problem with liking Emma again. And that's why acting as Ramala Garai does is so essential to being able to maybe keep an audience invested mm-hmm. because because it's so easy for this to be like a massive turnoff to Emma and you just can't recover from this if you're realizing how deeply she's playing with people's lives. Yeah, because the way Ramala plays her, she doesn't come off as, I mean, it's it's selfish, but it's not... It's a naive selfish. Yeah. Yeah, it's spoiled. Mm-hmm. Yes. Sheltered, ignorant. Yes. Yeah. It doesn't justify it, but it at least is the context that she brings to it rather than being like, girl, no, you're not going to marry him. I need you in like a very um, overtly and planned way, which I don't think, yeah, Mm -hmm. comes across in this adaptation at all. Right. So we then cut to the revealing of the painting. (laughs) It's not bad, but... that's about it right yeah it's like it's fine it's very pale yes it's fucking mid we can say it (laughs) yeah i think that's accurate it almost looks like a colored pencil drawing yeah with like a little bit of watercolor going on just a little bit of watercolor yeah it's very pale 
I liked what Elton said. He said, in only a few deft strokes, because there's not a lot going on. <laughs> there's, there's not much there. <laughs> yeah. And this Harriet is so genuine and, like, sweet. You can really see how impressionable she is. She's really thinking that he's calling her beautiful when he's calling the painting beautiful, and she's so excited. Whereas I feel like, not to compare, because they are both phenomenal, but uh, Mia Goth in the 2020 was an excellent Harriet, but she was like so almost over the top excitable. Mm. Mm. And this one is like kind of more subtle and and sweet and like impressionable. Mm-hmm. Both are good. They're just different. Yeah. So then we get Knightley walking through the countryside to beautiful cello music, which I wrote down Nightly walking through the countryside to beautiful cello music is my personality now. <laughs> Nightly can walk across a field towards me whenever he feels like. That's yeah. just fine. Like that, that, that B-roll should be spliced in like every other scene, I think, is uh, what we yes. need. It's just, you know, he likes to walk. We need more visual evidence of his enjoyment of walking. Exactly. Like mm-hmm. he talks about walking. We want to see him walk. Give us the walk. With cello. He knows how to stride. <laughs> he knows how to stride. Yes. Yeah. Uh. And that cello music is just perfect walking music. It is. I'm going to walk to it. It is. Yeah. <laughs> he arrives at Hartfield and Mr. Woodhouse is going off on his third turn around the grounds and he's just asked Emma to tighten his scarf for him. And I just, I love this sweet little moment. I actually like, Again, not, I mean, I am comparing, but like both are very good interpretations of Mr. Woodhouse, but like Bill Nye and his like way uh, over the top and kind of sprightly, sprightly almost. Mr. Woodhouse versus Michael Gammon, who's like kind of just sad and lonely and Emma's all he has and he is, he needs to be taken care of Yeah, in a way that I think Bill Nye doesn't and both are Again, good interpretations. Yeah. This one just really hit. Yeah. We we haven't talked much about it, but obviously in this adaptation, um, Mr. Woodhouse is played by the really recently deceased Michael Gambon. And I actually am pleased, not pleased, but moved that we're covering this one, yeah. like so close to his death. Yeah. Um, because, you know, it makes my heart hurt to see his performance, which is wonderful in this. And I think Mr. Woodhouse is of a piece uh, with Mr. Weston and the Bateses in this adaptation yeah. where that opening scene setting that they did yeah. really gives gravitas to his funnier quirks that are usually played for laughs in adaptations. Yeah. And so he's a very heartfelt rendition of Mr. Woodhouse and his second scarf is absolutely darling and his um, reluctance to take a third turn around the garden is also absolutely <laughs> darling. Yeah. Well, and and I think that also, you know, because because like Molly mentioned at the beginning where he's literally just holding on to his two daughters after his wife has mm. passed. Yeah. Where he's just he's physically just holding on to them. It's mm. that's a deeply moving thing that how and, and how Michael Gambon performs that is also just, oh, it's heavy. But then also the the little interactions in this in this coming scene between Michael Gambon and Raman Ramala Garay, you know, as as a father daughter duo, like the fact that like from a distance she's like checking like is your scarf on tight like they're signaling to each other across the garden and things like that where it's like that relationship is so so close in this in a way that i mean i mean there's a lot of quirks and there's a lot of maybe negligence on on mr woodhouse's part in terms of accepting of what his his what his daughter needs 
But their relationship is so adorable in this. It's so like every interaction is sweet. And I love that. Yeah, there was one moment that I wanted to mention earlier that you just made me think of. But when Miss Taylor first gets engaged and Emma's talking about, oh, she'll have a family next. And he's like, a family? No, mothers die. Die. Yep. And and the look that they give each other, like where she's like, I know. Yeah. And and yeah, it's such a small line, but it's so powerful given the, Mm -hmm. the upfront story that we've been given. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it could almost sound funny in the context because he's saying she can't have a family mothers die but the way he says it and just and because of the context is it's just heartbreaking mm. yeah and it's and again it's that eye acting that Ramala Garai is doing because she sees it she sees mm. what he's actually communicating is your mother died and yeah and she she receives that nice and loud and it's pretty mm-hmm. powerful well and even after the scene at the very very beginning you know after they're showing the the funeral service and he says something to her and Isabella, like, you know, you'll never leave or, you know, like it's, he's just like, okay, we're going to make the house so safe and nobody's ever going to go outside and we'll never leave and everybody will be okay. Um, And yeah, it's quite moving. So I don't know. I think he's also my favorite Mr. Woodhouse of the various adaptations. I do. I really enjoy the 2020 Emma and I, I mean, Bill Nighy is just such a, he's such a riot, right? Like that's just such a funny, (laughs) hilarious performance. Um, And, and I love it within the context of that film, but it's definitely not the Mr. Woodhouse of my imagination. Like when I'm reading the book and Michael Gambon is really delivering that for me. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. He's exactly what I pictured. This is, this is sort of a tangent. I don't know if any of you have seen the film adaptation of um, Elizabeth Gaskell's wives and daughters. He is also a father in that one. And um, he loses a son in that piece and the grief that he portrays Michael Gambon, the grief that he portrays when he loses his oldest son, he's just howling with this grief and he just physically can't embody. He's he's like physically holding him, carrying him at one point and then just kind of staggering the performance in those scenes alone are enough to make you know that Michael Gambon is a powerhouse actor. Oh yeah. So gorgeous. Uh, and I mean, that sort of I think that sort of energy of grief is underlying his performance here in a way that's really interesting because it, often Mr. Woodhouse is, you know, the butt of the joke in both the book and in most movie adaptations. But this adaptation never lets you forget why he is the way he is mm-hmm. and how much love he has for his daughters and particularly the special relationship between him and Emma. So I feel like that grief is that undercurrent that gives his performance so much heart. Love it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So Knightley and Emma are alone in the house and Knightley is really excited about this piece of gossip. He's like, I think I have something that even you are going to like. And he's like, do you have any of your brides and bridegrooms under there? Like his, her dolls. Uh, and she's like, no, I'm quite grown out of dolls. But we all know she's not. Oh, no. And then he tells her about Mr. Martin's intent to propose to Harriet. And Emma tells him that Harriet has already refused him. Commence the bickering. <laughs> oh, it's so good. It's so good. good. I was like, I couldn't write any notes down during this scene because I was just so engrossed in what was happening. And it's also basically word for word what happens in the book. So it's just like they really got it down and they're yelling at each other. They're angry and she like blares out men don't like girls who argue while she's arguing with her future husband it's perfect <laughs> and he's in his eyes he's like what do you mean men don't like girls who argue I like you but like he doesn't he's say like it. this is hot what are you talking about yeah. 
their face acting is so good because she's just her eyes are getting bigger and bigger and she's getting so frustrated and he is he does this kind of he does the yeah he does this exasperated where he's just like i i i I can't even talk right now you know (laughs) yes also what i love about her performance in this scene is that like she seems surprised that he's so upset Mm -hmm. like She's like, oh, yeah, this is just going to be something he's like lightly annoyed at me for and we'll move on with our lives because that's what he does. He's annoyed by me. Mm-hmm. But he's he, like keeps getting madder and madder. And she's like, what is your problem? I did the right thing. <laughs> like, I didn't think this was a big deal. Yeah. And then in the middle of their argument, Mr. Elton arrives and she just like runs outside. She's like, this can wait. And she goes outside and gives him the painting. And Knightley is watching her through the window. And Elton is like, I think he winks at her when he leaves. He like, he like salutes does her. like a salute thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then he kind of winks like very faintly with one eye. Um, <laughs> and Knightley is watching this whole thing and you can see him realizing that like Elton is getting signals from Emma that Emma's not intentionally giving off. And he's uh-huh. like, I think he, he starts to put it together there. When she comes back inside, he says, that man is so full of himself. I'm surprised he can stay on that horse. And they have this. That so good. They like laugh together, but then it's right back to the fighting. Yes. <laughs> they pick up right where they left off. It's so good. Cause it's like 10 minutes of them just arguing. And it's, a fight that happens in these stages because they're interrupted by Mr. Elton. And then like at one point, you know, he walks away and then he comes back and they're like arguing through the window. I mean, it's just, I love it. Yeah. And again, Emma keeps thinking the fight's over and she's like, oh God, you're still on this? Yeah. yeah. Um, She's like, okay, it's time for tea. Let's just tea. I loved that line. When, and it's when he disagrees with her. She's like, I really think it's time for tea. And yet it hasn't appeared. really upset she's like change the subject she is so used to things just appearing when she needs them also life is supposed to go my way yeah the two of them here is just exquisite foreplay and like you said it happens in the stages so it's like the first one is kind of just like it's almost more bantery at first where it's like oh what is up with you and it's like it's almost playful yeah there's a lot of good push and pull and then we get the break with mr elton and then it comes back and then it gets a little bit more intense Mm mm-hmm well, at what point Mr. Knightley's like, oh, by the way, if Mr. Elton's the one that you're thinking about, hmm, I've got something to tell you. And it's like, oh, gloves are off. That's when he comes back the third time and he's like, you are you are wrong. And he's- <laughs> 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 Yeah, but also he like he says that uh, he at first thought that Harriet was bad for Emma. Mm-hmm. But when he when they come back after Mr. Elton, he's like, I think that you are the bad influence on Harriet. Like, I think you're yeah. bad for her. Like, yep. turning it as an insult on her instead of the other way around. Which is just the worst thing you could say to Emma because she's over here like, I am such a good friend. I am a patroness. Thank you. I am Lady Catherine to Harriet's Mr. Collins, okay? <laughs> oh, yeah. She should be so grateful. And she says that he's just annoyed because her advice was the one that prevailed. And this makes him walk so out of the house. Mad. He's angry then he turns he turns and comes back and she thinks that they're done fighting yet again he turns around and she's like i'm so pleased you've come back for we will always be friends and he's like and he's like no 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 no. what i'm here for (laughs) that's when he says the thing about mr elton and then storms off just as it starts to rain and that's the end of that episode so good i love that he ends it with that reference to the dolls which opens it up he says harriet and robert are not your playthings they are not dolls and just turns around and one day you're gonna regret that you meddled and Mm -hmm. walks out like it's Ooh, it's such a mic drop for Mr. Knightley. You hate to see him go, but you love to watch him walk away. (laughs) And he walks in the rain. What is not to like about walking in the rain with Mr. Knightley? Yeah. Yes. Uh. And I feel like I have to give shouts to the very last line, which is, 
Mr. Woodhouse coming back, seeing Mr. Knightley leave and going, oh, I knew I should not have taken that last <laughs> turn. Yeah. Oh. oh, so sweet and so not aware of what happened. Yeah. Nope, not at all. <laughs> all right. I think that does bring us to the end of the episode, which brings us to Becca's study questions, the questions we ask at the end of each movie adaptation, starting with what is your favorite line delivery? I can start. Um, so I think, first of all, I will say the entirety of that last fight between Emma and Knightley, every single delivery in that scene could qualify as best line delivery, in my opinion. But because there's too many, I can't pick one. So instead, I'm going to go back to a consistently repeated line through the entire episode, which is every single time Rama Lagurai says the name Jane Fairfax, there's a way in which she delivers Jane Fairfax with the same uh like rhythm each time and it's with so much disdain fury and envy each time she says it it's jane fairfax jane fairfax <laughs> and i love it because you can see she is like the villain in emma's like little fantasy that she's made mm -hmm, for herself mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> i had that as well actually just that entire argument between knightley and emma yeah. um but if i had to pick out a specific line from that argument it would just be emma's like i think it's time for tea you know like what one so much and yet it has not appeared her eyes are taking up fully two-thirds of her face when she says that line and uh, it's perfect yeah, i just yeah. love it see and and mine was also from the argument because again the whole thing is gold but when mr knightley gets so upset and he's like oh better to have no wits than to misapply them the way you do mm -hmm. i didn't get that verbatim but where he's where he's just like what is wrong with the way you're using your logic mm -hmm. yeah um the delivery on that Nailed it. He just Johnny it. Lee Miller does exasperation so well. So well. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. He nailed that line for me. Mm. Um, mine is also from the argument, though I did write down a couple, <laughs> so I'll give two <laughs> one just to top us off. But from the argument, Emma saying, Let us, as you say, live in the real world where men <laughs> always reject a girl with a pretty face in favor of one with a well informed mind. Incredible. Iconic. And then also Johnny Lee Miller saying, I love to look at her. <laughs> yeah. That so is a great line. Incredible. I love to look at her. She's she's very, very, very hot. Okay. Okay. I'm glad. Okay. Can we admit it? We yes. can get it out of the way. Fine. Fine. She's hot. <laughs> I love to look at her. Okay. I said it. Notable changes from book to film. Obviously, this is a much more accurate one, so it's a little bit more difficult, but to the extent you've noticed. I think just the framing device for me, like we mm -hmm. talked about earlier, just the way that the focus is much more, you know, the novel really opens with, you know, Emma Woodhouse, right? Like she is the She's center. She's the exactly. center. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Handsome, clever, and rich. And this one, you're opening with all three of these characters, Emma, Frank, and Jane. And so like Zan, you were saying that fairy tale, it feels like this should be the adaptation it feels like an adaptation of a novel that would start with once upon a time, there were three children who had lost their mothers, you know, mm -hmm. and then kind of going on mm -hmm. from there. And of course, interestingly, you know, we haven't even met the other two yet other than their child versions. So, you know, I could see the kind of like coming up next, next episode, I got the like glimpse of Jane Fairfax. Mm -hmm. I'm like, ah, she's, she arrives. Yeah, I think I agree with that. I think that's the biggest one in this episode. I love the addition of the dolls everywhere. I mm -hmm. love that the dolls kind of make the the like opening sequence, the credit roll. I think that the the doll motif is so 
I mean, it's a tiny bit on the nose, but it's also very appropriate for right. for the way that the film is set up and the fact that, especially with the first episode, the fact that that is that groundwork of they are not your dolls. Um, I think that that's kind of a really lovely through line for this first episode, particularly. We're hitting the themes. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, I agree the framing device, particularly the highlighting of the plight of the bases and Mr. Weston definitely is a big change. But for the sake of diversity, I will also say um, Emma calling Isabella and John as a couple Mm. adds to a sort of idea that she has like a pattern Mm -hmm. of matchmaking, Mm -hmm. so to speak. So it gives her more fodder um, than she has in the book to believe she is a matchmaker. It's also just fun because... This first episode, I mean, the first half of this entire episode is basically like stuff that happens before the book starts. Mm -hmm, So, Mm -hmm. you know, we get a little bit of this backstory. It's kind of fun to see a little bit of John and Isabella's courtship. It's fun. Yeah. Also, I think in the book, or maybe it's just the last two that we watched, but I feel like they took some of the love out of John and Isabella's relationship that I don't know if that was so much in the book or not that they were kind of always bickering. Yeah, 96 is kind of you know, could kind of go either way. But the yeah. 2020 Emma, for sure, the two of them, like, hate each other. Right? Yes. Oh, yeah. And it's sad. I think <laughs> at this one, they show a little bit of, like, a little bit of maybe disillusionment when she's got, like, six children around. <laughs> right. But it's not animosity. I mean, obviously, no. they've got a great sex life, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you have to have that many kids. Right? Yeah. But, I mean, like, I, but, yeah, when you take out the love of this supposedly iconic love match, it... It kind of hurts my little romantic heart a little bit to see mm-hmm. adaptations do that. Yeah. yeah. This one plays more as like, you know, he's crotchety John Knightley, like at his desk working on his whatever and stuff. But, you know, you get the sense that they are. Yeah. He still calls her my love. Yeah. But like they're playing in the garden. They're literally chasing each other in the garden. And that's adorable. I love that. Okay. So third question is uh, favorite and least favorite. We'll start with least favorite so we get the negativity out of the way first. Um, thing in this episode okay mine is very fussy so it doesn't really like bother me bother me but I don't like Harriet at the dinner party I'm okay with the conversation stuff like her kind of being like oh oh almighty you know that's fine but the fact that she does not know where to put her napkin and like how to use her spoon I mostly dislike that in this adaptation because it's an insult to the good work of Mrs. Goddard, who you can yes. guarantee would make sure that her charges knew how to eat appropriately at a dinner party. I'm just saying. Especially before bringing her, she would yeah. be like, you know, even if she didn't already have that info, she would have been like, BT dubs, let's get you ready. Mrs. Goddard would make sure that she understood basic dinner party etiquette. So it's it's insulting to Mrs. Goddard. That is such a good point. That is such Goddard slander in this adaptation. <laughs> we will not stand for it. My least favorite part is also Harriet related, um, but even smaller. Her, I understand it might be period accurate, but her hair just <laughs> sends me in this adaptation. The, like, like crimped curl bangs that go all the way back. She's such a pretty girl, but like, it's like they did that to make her look like a mop next to Emma. Like, I don't understand what's going on. Like, because Emma's hair looks gorgeous and Harriet's looks like, ah, oh, man. All right. Yeah, that's that's my my big least well, favorite it's, part. It's interesting this. because actually Emma's hair looks much more undone 
and like something that she threw up her like threw together herself without the help of a lady's maid whereas harriet's hair looks like something that took hours to do and it would really be the exact opposite in terms of you know their stations well and harriet is supposed to be attractive she is an attract and she is the actress is adorable she's beautiful but the fact that they they made her her styling a little less aesthetic when when they clearly are trying so hard with Ramala Garai that it's an odd contrast to have to try to strike. Yes. I th- almost think that there's a little bit of trying to make her look like a doll, you know, oh, that she does. Ooh, okay. The way yeah. that her hair is styled and it's like so perfect, like little mm-hmm. perfect kind of little ringlets and how it sort of surrounds her face. She she looks like a little doll. Yeah, I can yeah. see that now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This is also incredibly nitpicky because I actually can barely think of anything I didn't like about this. <laughs> I mean, even my girlfriend who literally... She, she does not like watching Regency era stuff. She was sitting on the couch, like playing solitaire. And she was like, I was actually paying attention to this one. <laughs> I, praise. I, like, I think I liked that. Like, maybe I want to finish watching. Oh, my God. Yeah, I know. So but my thing is, I think that Emma's painting could have been worse. Like, I think that <laughs> in most adaptation or everything that we've seen so far. And also when I read the book, I pictured her not being that good at painting, um, reading like she just doesn't continue tasks like she doesn't finish learning skills she's not super good at piano like she's not supposed to be a good artist and while this was again a very mid painting it was much better than anything I could accomplish (laughs) so I wish it was worse fair it is funny when when they're painting outside and he walks up and to to Emma's and I'm like wow that looks like something from a very accomplished like landscape architect like doing a rendering for what your gardens will look like (laughs) and Harriet's is like crayon yeah and she was like he said my painting was coming along nicely and Emma went wow he really must be in love (laughs) (laughs) so shady Uh. oh this is such a cop-out I didn't have like a a least favorite part I think that there were just like little things where I, I did notice um what Diane was talking about with with uh Harriet that it was so overt like this is how you scoop a spoon and you you know you get Mr. Knightley kind of like noticing that that's the little by play <laughs> mm-hmm. between them but but I think I think that this is Goddard slander Mm-mm. it's again we won't stand for it um, <laughs> yeah. so it's just yeah. those, those fiddly details but in terms of like storytelling this this is a really cohesive storytelling that they do in this one yeah mm-hmm. absolutely which brings us to it's a good segue to uh what was our favorite thing in the adaptation I'll start. I think the banter between Emma and Knightley, we said it before, I'll say it again. It's so pitch perfect in this one. I think they really you you get the sense that like these two are like lifelong buddies who also bicker because they don't know how to deal with the fact that they're attracted to each other. Yeah. Um, my favorite part is Knightley's house and Knightley in his house <laughs> and just, you know, Knightley walking around his house. So Knightley that's walking. Night yeah, walking, full stop. just we get those shots of the exterior, which, you know, you have to get that in the in the Austin adaptation. We got to see the hot real estate. You know, that's essential. So <laughs> getting to see the exterior of the giant Donwell Abbey and that scene with Robert Martin. That's such a great addition. And getting to see him in his study and I'm just like, oh, nightly in his study with his books. And it's oh, OK. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's working for me. That's all I'm saying. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to say one of my favorite parts is the way that Miss um, Taylor, Mrs. Weston gets a lot more um, range, I think, in some ways where because she's such a pivotal part of Emma's childhood, the fact that they extended that opening sequence so, so extensively, but in a way that allows 
kind of what you're saying, Becca, where, where, where you get to sit with it a lot more. And so getting to see all those subtle moments between her and Emma, where it's like, I'm kind of a mother figure, but we're also just absolutely best friends. Like we're essential to each other in a lot of profound ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and the grief of the friendship, even though, even though everybody's like, it's half a mile, it's, it's not a big deal. You get the sense that both of the, both women are grieving that this is a chapter end for them. And I think mm-hmm. even, you know, again, the, the interaction between Mr. Knightley and Mrs. Weston, I just, all of the moments where we get to see her being this kind of incredible character that stays in the background a lot of times in the book, but she's so essential to Emma. I kind of, I kind of loved that we got a little bit more time with her. Yeah. Yeah. Similarly to that, uh, I was going to say that Mrs. Weston seems a little younger here than she is in other adaptations, which I loved because first of all, Mrs. Weston is pretty young. Like she's just getting married. She's probably like, in her early 30s, maybe her late 20s. And that allows her and Emma to have more of a friendship Mm -hmm. bond. So I really loved that as well. Also, Johnny Lee Miller. Yeah, I like how Zan had this like really deep, thoughtful answer. And I'm like, let me tell you about Mr. Knightley being hot at his house. He walks around on the Mm -hmm. grounds to cello music. Jane Austen can be both and Jane Austen should be both. <laughs> should be, absolutely. I mean, like, it would be kind of boring if we all said Johnny Lee Miller, but I think it would also be accurate if we all yeah. said Johnny Lee Miller. Like, mm-hmm. Well, I think then we can come to a consensus about who wins the episode. <laughs> it's never not going to be Johnny Lee Miller. Right. I have to say, Ramala Garai's facial expressions mm-hmm. uh, win the film, Yeah, this episode for me. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, only to be rivaled by Johnny Lee Miller's mm-hmm. facial expressions. Right. 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 Like I was going to say Johnny Lee Miller, but then I was like, well, since I could say that every single time, that would be boring. So like, let's just go ahead and say that for all of the episodes, that goes without saying. And also Ramala Garai's eyeballs. Fantastic. I mean, I yeah. And I, despite me being so thirsty about Mr. Knightley, I actually feel like the thing that wins this film for me is Mr. Woodhouse's scarf. So, mm. oh, mm-hmm. good choice. Fantastic choice. Yeah. Scarf number one or scarf number two, though? <laughs> I have a lot of feelings about him and his scarf. And he's just always bundled up in it, even when he's inside. I'm like, oh, Mr. Woodhouse, as somebody who also runs cold, I see you, you know? Yeah. Well, and I almost, yeah. I, I actually had two things written because I, I was going like while I was watching it and I had Mr. Woodhouse's gruel. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Deserved a a mention, at least, you know, him sitting with his bowl of gruel. I thought that was really adorable. Absolutely. Also, shouts to the soundtrack. Mm. Gorgeous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Goes without saying. That cello has to win something. Specifically the cellist on the soundtrack. (laughs) Yeah, that that might be my winner, actually. I think that, I'll say that. Do you think that they projected that scene of Johnny Lee Miller walking wob? Yeah. They had to because the the emotion was there. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. Okay, that concludes this episode of Pod and Prejudice. Zan and Diane, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to tell the people where they can find you? Sure. Yeah. You can find us, I don't know, wherever fine podcasts are sold, you know, for free because that's the way that podcasts work. Um, you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. I do have to say we're both pretty sporadic 
social media, you know, we just, we get on there occasionally to do a post and then that's, that's pretty much it. But, um, you know, you can definitely find us there and you can also just go right to our website, which is the thing about Austin.com. And that has links to all of our socials and everything like that. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining. This was an absolute blast. Thank you. This is so fun. Thank you so much for having us. Yes. Listeners, for next time, you're just going to watch the next part of this miniseries. It's going to be pretty straightforward for a while. So until next time, stay proper. And don't forget to tie your second scarf nice and tight. (laughs) Perfect. You don't want to be cold on your third turn about the garden. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.